We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Thanks for having me. And regular commentator Donovan Smith in Taichung. And great to be back. And we'll begin with Taiwan making global headlines this week after Beijing stepped up its incursions into Taiwan's air defence identification zone. A total of 149 Chinese aircraft entered the zone over four days, 38 on October the 1st, 39 on October the 2nd, 16 on October the 3rd and 56 on October the 4th. President Tsai Ing-wen responded by stressing that Taiwan will do whatever it takes to defend itself and its democracy if it's threatened. And she warned Beijing that the incursions could result in miscalculations and said their administration is continuing to express an openness with dialogue with China. And she went on to stress that a failure to defend Taiwan would not only be catastrophic for the Taiwanese but will also overturn a security architecture that has allowed for peace and extraordinary economic development in the region for seven decades. Now numerous US officials voiced their support for Taiwan amid Beijing's stepped up incursions. US State Department spokesperson Ned Price called on Beijing to cease pressuring Taiwan saying that Washington strongly urges Beijing to stop such actions that undermine regional peace and stability. And while Price refused to speculate on Beijing's motives for the large incursions, he did say that the US is very concerned about China's military provocations around Taiwan as they're destabilising and risk leading to miscalculations. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken addressed the ongoing incursions by Chinese military aircraft into Taiwan's ADIZ by reiterating concerns that Beijing is undermining regional peace and stability with its provocative action. And Blinken also stressed that Washington will continue to stand with friends and allies allies, and that includes democratic Taiwan. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters that the Biden administration is in private communications over Chinese actions with regard to Taiwan and is conveying a clear message on the issue through diplomatic channels. While US President Joe Biden has responded to China's military sorties near Taiwan for the first time since taking office, saying that China's leader Xi Jinping should stick to the Taiwan agreement. And according to Biden, he's spoken with Xi about Taiwan and both sides agree to abide by what he called the Taiwan agreement and he made it clear that he doesn't think she should be doing anything other than abiding by the agreement. Although Biden didn't specify what agreement he was talking about, he appeared to be referring to Washington's long-standing One China policy and the Taiwan Relations Act. Now the Ministry of National Defence here in Taiwan says that more than 600 Chinese aircraft have made incursions into the air defence identification zone so far this year. So Nicola, um, lots of aeroplanes coming into the air defence identification zone which of course must be remembered it's not actually Taiwan's airspace. That's correct, and it's a very important distinction to make, but I, I think people are starting to get the hang of it, even Western journalists like me. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a worrying development. Um, it certainly caught the world's attention. In one way, um, it's, it's good for the, the world to realise the level of threat um, that China is posing to Taiwan, and so... Um, that is a positive out of a negative situation, um, that people are waking up to the reality that China has said repeatedly that it's willing and ready to invade Taiwan uh, if Taiwan doesn't agree to be annexed. So people need to know that that is a, a real um, danger and, and that they mean it. Um, but I, I, I see what's been happening 
um, this week in particular with the record number of aircraft um, coming into the defence, uh, the air defence, so as, as more of a, a wake-up call rather than a sign. I don't think anyone thinks it's a sign of an imminent invasion, but um, I think one of the most important things that was made this week among all of the, um, the Taiwanese leadership was from the defence minister, um, who gave quite a, a very alarming prediction that, that China may not invade tomorrow, but they could be capable, um, they will be capable of doing it by 2025. And that really signals um, to Taiwan and to the United States that just it, it stresses the importance once again of building up the right capabilities to um, to create an effective deterrence against China to to you know give Xi Jinping pause for thought that um, Taiwan has the means to defend itself and and Taiwan has stated it will do so, but it needs to invest more in the right kind of equipment um, to do so, more um, asymmetric defence um, assets, uh, coastal defence, um, cruise missiles, sea mines, and also um, uh, air defence zones, and, and also crucially to prepare the public as well, uh, and to create a sense of um, resilience within the public. Um, and to prepare for um, grey zone warfare like um, blockades, um, uh, stockpile food, energy, um, munitions, that kind of thing, and just to prepare the public for the worst case scenario. Um, yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> there's kind of a lot going on here to unpack. Um, so you've got uh, on the U.S. side, you have the very mysterious. Um, you had the very, very mysterious um, uh, statement by Biden about the Taiwan Agreement, and that really raised a lot of eyebrows um, because, of course, the Taiwan Relations Act was not an agreement with China. That was an act of Congress. Um, so there's that. Then late last night, the Wall Street Journal came out with the report that there has been uh, special forces and Marines, uh, uh, both from the U.S., have been in Taiwan for over a year, uh, stationed here, not in large numbers, like in the low dozens, but that they've been here doing training for quite some time. Now, it's very interesting, I thought, that that, was, that information got out right after Biden's mysterious uh, Taiwan agreement comments and, of course, uh, all, all the incursions that are going on at the same, you know, this is all happening right around the same time. It just, there, there's a lot to unpack here, and I think there's a lot that we really don't know what is going on. Um, now, the incursions are, interestingly, they have been in areas, they've been almost entirely toward the south, and around the Pradas Islands, down that way, and through the Bashi Channel, which of course should be alarming the Philippines as well, but I haven't seen any coverage on that at all. Um, but they've also been doing a lot of their uh, exercises outside of areas where there's going to be a lot of commercial flights, which does reduce the chances of there being any kind of accident, hopefully. Um, but it is still very, very alarming, and people should be, as Nicola noted, the, the people around the world should be paying a lot of attention to this. Now, I also thought it was very interesting that the Global Times, the Chinese Communist Party uh, nationalistic mouthpiece, 
portrayed the uh, portrayed these incursions as part of their national day celebrations as a kind of uh, a military parade uh, as it were um, and but then they dropped the number of incursions to one on the day that uh, Eric Chu took over as KMT chair which I don't know if they were sending a message with that but it certainly looks suggestive um, but again as far as far as what they're doing with these things we know they're graze on tactics wearing down Taiwan's defenses testing the defenses here uh, testing their capabilities and in larger and ever larger and increasing numbers which shows increasing sophistication both at day and night you've got the uh, various powers Japan the US the UK with aircraft carriers and um, uh, they're conducting maneuvers right now uh, uh, you know out, off of Japan so there's an awful lot going on but it's a little bit hard to say exactly what part or what message China is, is, is intending to send. But again, it is good, as Nicola noted, that the world is now really paying attention to this. And Nicola, I mean, do you think it being Chinese National Day and the National Celebratory Week in China for its National Day was part of the reason there was so many incursions? Obviously, it wanted to look tough to its own people. Uh, yes. Yes, I do. I mean, that's my opinion. None of us really know what uh, Xi Jinping is, is thinking or is it what the Chinese are, uh, military is, is, or PLA is thinking. But I think that's a very plausible, one very plausible reason as to why there was such a show of force that it was playing to a domestic audience. That, that would certainly make sense. Um, I, I mean, I've heard several theories, one which I thought was very good from uh, Bonnie Glazer, um, from the German Marshall Fund of, of the US is very well known in Taiwan. Um, when I was speaking to her this week, she said that it was her view that it could well be um, a training exercise that uh, Xi Jinping is, has told uh, the military that they need to train, that they need to um, get much, you know, a lot more practice at using a lot of the shiny new equipment that the Chinese government has been investing in over the past few years. Um, uh, and to get some, you know, training for a real for a real life scenario, and that also makes a lot of sense because even though China has been building up its military and its assets and its equipment and investing so much money, the, the military itself is largely untested in the battlefield. So, you know, it'd be entirely logical that it, it could be, um, you know, as Bonnie uh, said, the end of a training cycle, um, and that maybe that's why. We, we saw a sudden drop-off as well, or, or, or there are also um, back channels going on. You mentioned before that uh, Jen Psaki in the White House had said um, that there are, uh, you know, diplomatic talks going on in the background, and there's a, there's a lot that we don't know. Um, and so there could be multiple reasons for the surge in these sorties and for the sudden de-escalation. Moving on now to things we do know about, and it's coronavirus news again this week. And Taiwan managed to go eight days without a domestic case as of the time we're recording this show, which is quite good, of course. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week also extended its level two coronavirus alert for another two weeks until October the 18th, but it did ease some restrictions. Uh, basically, religious venues can now reopen to worshippers under certain circumstances. Self service hot food areas are now available at convenience stores. Should you 
you wish to have such a tasty treat as a tea egg, a sweet potato or a hot dog and KTVs and internet cafes were allowed to reopen and that, needless to say, led to lots of reports about police officers island-wide visiting their neighbourhood KTVs to ensure that patrons were wearing face masks and not eating food. And if you're interested, well, the public can now visit outdoor scenic areas here without having to wear a face mask but only if social distancing can be maintained. Now, the Health Minister Shen Chen Shijong this week said that the Central Epidemic Command Centre could secure supplies of a pill that significantly reduces the risk of hospitalisation or death from the coronavirus by the end of this year. Now, the pill apparently is basically had phase three clinical trials and it's orally administered because, of course, it's a pill and those trials were conducted in over 20 countries including Taiwan. The pill has been developed jointly by Merck and Ridgeback and interim results show that the pill reduces the risk of hospitalisation or death from the coronavirus by approximately 50%. Meanwhile the health minister this week also said that the government is currently not considering strengthening quarantine requirements for fully vaccinated flight crew members when they return to Taiwan from long haul assignments and that statement comes amid concern about another possible domestic coronavirus outbreak after a China Airlines co-pilot tested positive earlier this week for the coronavirus Delta variant. Now, two elementary schools in Taipei were suspended, or their classes were suspended, because the co-pilot's children went to those schools and over 100 other people have been tested for the virus so far as contacts of the person. Now, according to the health minister, authorities firmly believe that the current 5 plus 9 quarantine system for long-haul flight crews is sufficient, but he also stressed that the issue will be reviewed during discussions with the Civil Aeronautics Administration. And to cap it all, the government's latest round of coronavirus pandemic stimulus vouchers is being rolled out today and the public is now getting its pause on the 5,000 NT worth of coupons which are geared towards stimulating the virus-hit economy. The vouchers are being distributed from today and they're valid through April of next year and pre-orders for the vouchers in print form from convenience store chains or the programme's official website began on September the 25th. Now, reservations for physical vouchers from the Zhonghua Post Office, well, that opened on October the 4th, while people who opted to take the digital versions of the vouchers began binding them to their digital payment services on September the 22nd. The vouchers have been issued in packs of 10 bills and include three 1,000 NT dollar bills, two 500 NT dollar bills and five 200 NT dollar bills. And of course there are also further stimulus coupons for specific use. Basically there's food coupons, cultural coupons, sports coupons, travel coupons and even special coupons that only hacker people can actually apply for. Now figures show that as of Thursday of this week, 3.99 million people had registered for the digital versions of the stimulus vouchers while the Zhonghua Post Office earlier this week said that over one million people registered to receive their stimulus vouchers from post offices island-wide. So, Donovan, stimulus vouchers, special stimulus vouchers, and, of course, some local governments have got their own super stimulus vouchers. Yeah, I, I mean, down here in central Taiwan, the Taichung city government uh, has passed at least one reading, and they may have already gotten through to the second or third, on uh, the annual shopping festival, which is uh, in... Uh, something that was brought in by uh, Mayor Liu, and they're they're delayed it this year because level they usually have it in the summer, uh, but they're going to spend I think it was 350 million NT, and essentially what it is is, uh, as so far there's no talk of actual vouchers, but essentially what it is if you go out and you do some shopping, then you're included in, in lucky prize draws, and there's a considerable number of, of prizes, like quite a few. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a 
reasonable chance that you'll know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who might win it. Um, and last year, the, the grand prize was an apartment, for example. Uh, but there's a lot of these smaller cash prizes, like 5,000 NT. Um, in, in Zhonghua County, a couple of townships uh, have been handing out direct cash. In Beidou, they started in, uh, they handed out stimulus vouchers of 500 NT starting in mid-September. And Shizhou just handed out a series of 1,000 NT uh, vouchers to their uh, citizens, their residents. And Nicola, of course, concern about more coronavirus um, Delta variants coming in with a co-pilot there. I mean, but the health minister said they got no plans to sort of revise the quarantine restrictions laid on long haul flight attendants and pilots. I don't know really what people expect of the government or how much more they expect of pilots because um, pilots already have some of the most extreme and strict um, regulations. Um, and rules to follow uh, under the, the pandemic than any anyone else in the world, any other pilots in the world. I mean, you know, they're, they're basically, when they go long haul, they go to a hotel room um, at, at their destination and they're locked, literally locked in their hotel room. They're given a one-time pass key and so, you know, they're not allowed to leave the room or, and if they do, then they'll, they'll be caught and fined or, you know, could lose their job or whatever. They come back here um, and then they've got more quarantine. They never see their family. Um, they have literally no downtime. Um, it's affecting their health, their physical health, their mental health. Um, and really, do people, you know, do people want to put more of a burden on them just for, for the unrealistic goal of zero COVID, which just, you know, we're t- almost two years into the pandemic now. We have to find a strategy to emerge from the pandemic without having this unrealistic expectation that we can live forever in a protected bubble where there's no COVID at all. Um, and that's why, you know, the vaccinations are just, so important. Um, this pill that you mentioned as well, that the government um, kind of gets ahead of the game in investing um, in the latest medicines. Last year, there was hesitancy over um, throwing money at vaccines because they were you know, largely unknown. And, and that has come up to, to, that has caught up with Taiwan. And Taiwan is now at risk of being left behind as the rest of the world reopens. And so when you come to pilots, I mean, it's pilots who are basically keeping the economy going. It's pilots who are responsible for Taiwan being able to keep a strong economy during um, the pandemic. Um, It's one of the few countries in the world where the economy actually grew. And that's, you know, pilots played a huge role in that. So I, I really don't know how much more people expect, how much more sacrifice people expect pilots to make. Um, You know, if there are... Uh, deliberate breaches by pilots or aircrew of the existing rules, then of course, you know, they, they should pay the consequences of that. And I don't think any of the aircrews would disagree with that. Um, but if you just keep tightening and tightening the rules, then I, I just don't know if you're going to have um, uh, A, enough pilots who are willing to continue under these conditions, which will be an economic blow to Taiwan. Um, and B, I think it's going to compromise air safety. So, Donovan, we've got pilots' quarantine questions and a super pill to make people better. 
Uh, yeah, well, on the pilots, um, I, I, there's not much I can add to uh, Nicola's excellent comments there, except to note that I believe that air crews now are 99% vaccinated, um, which I think kind of underscores her point. Um, and now on the pill, um, it still hasn't been approved anywhere in the world that I'm aware of, uh, and they're and they don't know the pricing on it yet, but I've heard reports that they are hoping that it's going to be relatively inexpensive. Apparently, it's very effective if you take it really early on. So um, I, I, I believe I heard one analyst online saying, basically, if you just feel bad, take one of these pills. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not sure that's great medical advice. But uh, essentially, yes, if they can get that, if, 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 you, if they take it early, uh, very pro or proactively when they, they get the initial symptoms, then it looks like it's a, it will be quite a boon. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are afraid of needles or afraid of the vaccines because it's a new technology uh, in most of the vaccines. And they may be more likely or uh, less afraid to take a pill, which so that may help cover some of these gaps in uh, vac vaccine coverage. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week, This Week. And in the second half, we're going to begin by talking about the newly elected KMT chairman, Eric Ju, who officially replaced Johnny Jung this Tuesday at a handover ceremony at the party's Taipei headquarters. And speaking to reporters after being handed the mighty seal, Ju said that he's preparing the party for political combat and plans to bring alienated members back to the fold. Now, according to Ju, he believes it's extremely important to bring back the many KMT members who no longer associate with the party, as he says, even if they are disappointed or dissatisfied with the KMT, such a move will be the first step towards party unity. Now, Jew says the current KMT currently has some 370,000 party members, but he says the number of disappointed or disaffected numbers, well, they could number as high as 300,000. Now, also at the handover event, Jew said that he's basically going to kickstart his um, outreach to China for more exchanges between the two sides also said that he plans to enhance ties with the United States, Japan, the European Union, Singapore and Southeast Asia and he also said another thing which was mildly important he plans the first thing to do is to try to remove a lawmaker from the Taichung area Donovan. Yes. Uh, yes, the Chen Boi aka Sankyu uh, recall which there's not really very much hard data out on uh, on whether or not this is going to go through uh, or succeed, but the momentum in the press appears to be behind uh, the the organizers of the recall. So the, really, the big question is: Will they be able to get enough turnout to uh, to have to pass the minimum thresholds required to get him? Recalled. Now, I'm really looking to see if there's good polling coming out because, again, there, I haven't seen anything reliable so far. Now, as to whether or not he he will be, again, it's the turnout I think is the big question. But he has – now, we've had two uh, two Pan Green uh, recalls so far. There was the, the guy whose name just right now is uh, – it's on the tip of my tongue, but I've forgotten it. But the guy in Taoyuan. And then there was Huang Jie down in 
Kaohsiung. Now, Huang Jia survived her recall, and the guy in um, Taoyuan didn't. And I think that there's a big fundamental difference between those two different characters. One, and I think the big, the big part about it is the guy in Taoyuan, he was very combative, tended to insult a lot of people online, uh, particularly in the blue camp, and generally made himself deeply, deeply disliked by people on the blue side of the spectrum. Huang Jie, on the other hand, uh, she was an independent, so she wasn't officially tied to her old party, the NPP, or the DPP. Um, and also, outside of her grilling Han Guoyu in the city council, by and large, if you follow her on social media, like I do, um, is you'll see that she generally projects an image of kindness, caring about her constituents, she doesn't launch attacks on pe- people of different political persuasions. In other words, she's a much more agreeable character, whereas Chen Wei is quite combative. So I think that the level of hate on the deep blue side for him is pretty high. So there's going to be a solid core of people who are highly motivated. Now, he's also got another problem that he's going to have to overcome. He defeated Yen Quanhong of the famous Yen family from uh, the Taichung Black faction. And while the factions don't have anywhere near the muscle or pull they once did, they still have some. And one of the crucial elements of that is get out the vote. So there's, and of course, Yen Quanhang wants his seat back, as he views it as his and his family's. So I think that, that Chen has these two basic problems. One is he's offended a lot of people on the deep blue side. And number two, the powerful black faction get out the vote machine will be, both of these things will be mobilized against him. So he's going to have to scramble to, uh, to try and defend his seat. Again, I think it's going to come down to turnout. Right, Nicola, of course, Eric Jew, basically touting party unity and the restarting of cross-strait exchanges, basically, there. Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting exchange with President Xi. Um, and I, I, I think that it, it unsettled a lot of people, actually. Um, certainly, well, obviously, the DPP were very um, uh, outspoken against Eric Jew's um, comments to President Xi, uh, basically blaming them for um, cross-strait tension. Um, and, uh, but I think it goes beyond the DPP. I, I mean, he's basically saying that Taiwan's current government is responsible for, um, is responsible for a bad relationship with China and is responsible for essentially the, the, the increasing threat against uh, Taiwan, and that's a big statement to make, and, and and not placing any blame on the actual aggressor that is sending um, 150 military aircraft into Taiwan's air defence zone. That that is quite unsettling to a lot of people. I, I think not just um, not just uh, it's not just about party politics here. Um, and President Tsai has repeatedly said, I mean, she said in her Foreign Affairs magazine um, article this week, again, that uh, the Taiwanese government is open to talks with Beijing as long as this dialogue proceeds in a spirit of equality and without preconditions. 
And with, so I, I don't think anyone would be opposed to having talks with Beijing, but under what conditions? And I don't think Eric Zhu has made that clear, um, you know, under what circumstances he would be willing to speak to China. You, you also have the um, very uh, difficult situation where he's the leader of the, the opposition party. So anything he, if, you know, China could easily use the situation to, to undermine the government, um, to, you know, as, as part of a kind of divide and, and conquer strategy. And he really has to be very careful. And I think he really has to read the rim um, of, you know, public opinion. I think the Mainland Affairs Council pointed that out. And they said that, you know, he really needs to get a handle on mainstream public opinion. Um, and so I, I think Eric Drew has a big job on his hands to decide where to take the KMT um, and just to try and establish what, what the KMT is all about. You know, what are their policies? And who are they trying to appeal to? Are, is he trying to appease the deep blue members of his own party? Or is he trying to appeal to the wider public and make the party re-electable? Um, you know, when, when you said that he, he, he wants to bring back um, political combat uh, to the party, I mean, did he mean that literally, you know, Two days after he was elected, he had members of the party trashing the parliament. Is that really what the KMT stands for? And what you know, what are their policies? How are they going to approach China on an equal basis? Um, and how are they going to do that when they're not in government and they don't have that negotiating mandate? And moving away from politics now, and several of the island's media associations this week called on the government to introduce policies to require Google and similar major international online platform operators to give local content providers a larger slice of the advertising revenue pie. Now, those groups included the Taipei Newspapers Association, the Satellite Television Broadcasting Association and the Taiwan Digital and Marketing Association. And according to those groups, local media providers are currently only getting a very small percentage of advertising revenue based on the advertising traffic their content brings in. Now, the groups say they've long supported the establishment of a central government-mandated mechanism to calculate how advertising revenue should be distributed fairly between local media and the platform operators. And they're also citing how Australia handled the issue earlier this year, which resulted in Google paying the news publishers a fixed monthly fee for their content. However, the media associations also pointed out that Taiwan likely doesn't have, well, the clout needed to negotiate with Google and similar major international online platform operators on the matter to ensure that, well, more revenue is given to local content providers. Donovan? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be very interesting to see how this plays out in Australia. I mean, it's still relatively new there. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, a lot, you know, the... Several of these companies talked about pulling out of the Australian market, and then in the end, they didn't. Um, I think Taiwan would definitely benefit from keeping a close eye on how well this works out in Australia, um, but may want to hold off a little bit and see if some other countries join in. Uh, Taiwan as a market, it, it could happen that well, you know some of these companies may just go, you know. Taiwan's not that big of a market for us, so they, you know, they might pull out. But I do think that Taiwan should definitely keep an eye on this and consider it longer term. Well, uh, one of the, I, I, it seems like a very, um, I won't say ill thought through proposal, but I, I just think there are kind of un, perhaps unintended consequences from it as well um, when they're talking about um, devoting a percentage. 
of um, the advertising revenue to the creation of a public fund which would be used to support the production of quality news content. I mean, what does that mean? Who, who's going to be deciding um, what quality news content is? I think you're starting to get into dangerous territory when you, when you start talking about uh, public funds that are, that are going to be deciding about quality news, news content. And I, I also think that um, the criticisms that, um, that this is just unrealistic to expect um, Google to negotiate on, on you know, these terms... I think those criticisms are valid as well. There, people need to, to um, find more creative. It's a very competitive uh, media environment, and I, I think people just start to, need to start thinking of more creative ways to generate revenue as well. In Australia, I can add, uh, in Australia, the media groups have been negotiating directly with these companies rather than going through a centralised fund. Nicola, do you think that's possible here? Or do you think Taiwan is too much of a, a niche market, to give it a word? Yeah, I, I think that's probably unfortunately the case. But, um, you know, I think someone mentioned in the criticisms that even Rupert Murdoch is having problems um, negotiating with, with Google. And so I think Taiwan does need to have some more realistic um, expectations. Um, I do think there's a lot of potential for Taiwanese media um, especially as there is more and more um, global attention on Taiwan. And I think that's something they could really capitalize on, even the smaller media outlets, for sure. Um, but I think maybe it just needs a bit more strategic, um, realistic thinking, um, rather than, than going for such kind of um, ambitious goals initially. And of course, Donovan, the government does like to cosy up to Google and Facebook and companies because it wants to bring their offices here to open offices, basically. Yes, and they've had considerable success with that, um, including a you know, major data center down here in Zhanghua. And of course, Google's been investing pretty heavily in, in Taiwan. So, I, I, yeah, I think the government would want to keep on their good side. So, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't think the government's going to do anything for a while. I think they're just going to wait and see what other countries do. But do you think they should? Do you think the local content providers should be given more more chunk of the pie, basically? I I, I, I echo what what Nicholas said is that I think more creative ways of thinking, you know, of, of approaching this may be needed. Um, but you know, the, again, Taiwan is a relatively small market. I, as you pointed out rightly, that these companies have been investing in Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, I don't really know that Taiwan has all that much leverage. I, I suspect if the Australian model become, is, is viewed widely as successful, that people, other countries around the world will start to follow it, and then a, a template will emerge that other, company, other countries will just simply copy if, if, if the Australian model turns out well. And before we go this week, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been left rather red-faced after it came to light that a video released to celebrate Double Ten National Day featured footage of an alpine peak in Switzerland instead of Jade Mountain, as had been the plan. Now, the erroneous footage wasn't simply part of the, a brief part of the video, but appeared in the video's opening segment, which, needless to say, led to angry cries of government incompetence by opposition lawmakers and chortles from people like me. Now, the video was titled 2021 Taiwan bringing people together and was uploaded to the YouTube. Now, the foreign ministry, well, it apologised for the mistake, but, of course, it also took great strides to simply blame the film production company contracted to make the video for the use of the Swiss P. 
speak. So, Donovan, I mean, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it said nothing and then it blamed the company and then it finally apologised. I think maybe the Ministry itself was partly to blame for the use of a Swiss peak instead of Jade Mountain. Oh, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I think that this was a, a brilliant national security move. After all, I mean, you've seen those propaganda videos coming out of China where, you know, they show Chinese fighter jets uh, threatening to, you know, and they keep talking about they're, they're going to send them over Jade Mountain and all of this. So, you know, I, I think this is a concerted effort by the government to make sure that those fighter pilots won't be able to recognize it. <laughs> right. Um, but more seriously, yes, this is embarrassing. But, and this is, but this is a repeated pattern. Because most of these things are subcontracted out to you know, various various companies to produce marketing materials for the you know for the government, and this happens on the local level, you know, with city governments and county governments, and at the national level. And and quite often, what these companies are using, they're using various stock images, or and they're getting their their materials from a variety of different sources. And so we've seen this, this, this exact same pattern play out many different times. For example, there was that Russian designers uh, for, you know, leopard cats that went onto the trains, and, you know, her, her designs were copied, and though she, she had a, a good sense of humor about it. But we see a lot of this kind of thing happen. And to a certain degree, there's this large volume of tourist-related materials that almost nobody will ever see that come out of all these different levels of government and they go out to the lowest bid and the lowest bidder that wins it usually then tries to minimize their costs and effort to actually execute it. And so we're going to keep seeing this happen over and over again because every time it happens they say it won't happen again and then it does. And Nicola, maybe the Ministry of Foreign Affairs needs better due diligence. Uh, maybe, or maybe it was just a kind of simple mistake. I mean, you know, to be fair, the mountains do look quite similar. Um, although, you know, I don't want to provoke mountaineer hate from that. But, I, you know, it, it was corrected. It was, um, they apologise. And it's not exactly a Watergate scandal, is it? But um, I, I, I think that on, the, on a more serious side of things, Taiwan could definitely market itself much better. And I think this has been um, a long-running problem. It's not necessarily linked to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but just, you know, whoever has been running overseas campaigns, certainly for the Tears Board, or um, I think Taiwan doesn't sell itself um, abroad very well. Um, I mean, a lot of the most beautiful um, places in Taiwan are... are very hard to discover unless you have local knowledge. And I, I think that they do really need to, um, across the, the board, across the government, across you know all of the agencies that are tasked with promoting Taiwan, I do think that they need to focus more on um, better quality content and really showing um, people why they should all flock to Taiwan after the, the quarantine's lifted and the pandemic is over because it, it has so much to offer and it's a real shame when, when things like this just become a distraction um, and, you know, detract from, from um, all the reasons why people should come to Taiwan. Of course, it's interesting you said that, Nicola, because at the moment while I've been watching television, both Japan and South Korea are now running tourism commercials, newly made tourism commercials to attract people back to those countries? 
Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the right way to go. And I, I think it, it really has to be top quality. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago seeing one advert for for Taiwan, um, which was kind of trying to lure people here by saying, "Come here, you won't get mugged. It's very safe." And that was a kind of you know very unusual um, tourism strategy. I, I don't think it's you know that's an extreme example. It's it's, it's really not as bad as that, and it, it has improved. But um, I. I don't think there has been enough investment in the kind of um, the, the kind of adverts or the kind of um, campaign, awareness campaigns that, that Taiwan needs to um, bring people here, especially with you know that ties in with the new Southland policy, with attracting more tourists from around the region. For many years, there was a, a focus on Chinese tour buses, and and you know that's just not sustainable anymore. So. I think there needs to be a shift in mentality about, you know, what kind of visitors you want to come to Taiwan. Do you want to appeal to the the kind of backpacker tourists? Do you want to appeal to the high-end tourists? Um, how do you adapt then your um, tourism campaigns? And also, how do you adapt your infrastructure to accommodate that? You know, and, and that could be even just simple things like having more... Um, Having more signs at key tourist spots in different languages, you know, um, including some of the Southeast Asian languages, uh, where people do have a lot more um, disposable income, and, and uh, you know, they're willing to use it on travel. And I, I think um, post-pandemic, people are really going to want to travel again. Um, you know, everyone's been so locked up in their own countries, but I, I think Taiwan needs to think ahead and, and really, you know, on how to capitalize on that and and how to um, have the best uh, strategies to, to attract people here and to really give the tourism industry a big boost. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Nicola Smith. Thanks again for having me. And Donovan Smith. Yes, and thanks for having me as well. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.